Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Uh, today, uh, I'm joined by my friend, Todd Waldron. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing great, Mark. It's great to be here. Uh, how have you been? Well, it's it's hunting season, which uh, we talk about hunting, obviously, most of the time on this podcast, but we're in the thick of it right now. So it uh, it's good. You know, we've got some cooler weather coming in. The birds are flying. The the bucks are ready to, to get into the rut. And uh, it's just, you know, the best time of the year. <laughs> it is the best time of the year. I saw a quote the other day that said, I wish every month was October. And uh, <laughs> that's how I'm feeling right now. So it goes all too quickly. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, I was up north uh, last weekend. Uh, my gosh, the colors were just amazing. Just amazing. And I, I was surprised because I didn't think they would be as vibrant as they were given the drought this year. But uh, but it's been it's been a beautiful fall so far, and and next week we head into into deer season uh, opener here for a rifle, and so it'll it'll be a busy time. There'll be a lot of orange out in the woods. But uh, you were you were actually in Minnesota recently, weren't you? I was, and it was an amazing trip. I came out for work for Rough Grouse Society, and uh, we were hunting up in northern Minnesota. Um, it's a it's an event that we do for some life sponsors um, for RGS AWS, and just I was able to spend maybe eight nine days up there and felt so at home. It was wonderful, uh, great people, lots of good bird dogs. We we got into plenty of grouse and woodcock, and um, you know wasn't quite ready to leave. It went all too quickly, and uh, really fun experience. How many days uh, were you hunting out of that eight or nine being here? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. We, we're actually only formally hunting maybe two or three days. Uh, but I spent a couple of days scouting, looking at some great habitat, um, looked at some projects over on the Chippewa National Forest with some peers. And um, overall, yeah, spent a lot of time in the woods and just uh, it was beautiful. I, I love that area up there. Yeah, it's my neck of the woods. I wish I would have been able to connect with you. <laughs> and That's then, for sure. Next time. <laughs> yeah, next time. Exactly. And then uh, did you do another hunt up, up in uh, up in New York? Yeah, so we're just coming off of a, a great hunt at um, in Malone, New York. Malone is on the Canadian border. It's um, west of Plattsburgh, New York, near Lake Champlain. And um, one of our RGS uh, board members, Bruce Bennett, has a place called On the Wing Grouse Camp. And he's been hosting this hunt for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And it was just wonderful. Uh, we had about maybe, I don't know, 40 hunters. And the weather was perfect. And uh, again, you know, plenty of birds, plenty of bird dogs, and just a really cool time. And, you know, I'm still pretty new to the upland lifestyle. I've been hunting my whole life, but I never had bird dogs when I was growing up. So um, I actually harvested the first two woodcock I've ever shot was this weekend. And uh, we're all new to something. And I was new to that. And it was wonderful to experience. And um, it was mostly because of the great dog work and the great people that I was hunting with. So 
It was good. Yeah. It was a really cool experience. Last week, I was out in western Minnesota with Kang Yang uh, and his dog Kaya, and we were we were waterfall hunting. By eight thirty in the morning, we were one short of our limit on ducks, and then a little bit later, we got two uh, two Canadas. We had these Canadian geese that that that, that came in. Uh, to our calling. We didn't have any decoys out and they decoyed in perfectly. And it was so fun to see his German wire hair pointer working out in the water. She was just a machine, just bringing the birds back to hand perfectly. And that that's one of those things where I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with hunting and haven't seen that would be amazed at that work. And I think the more you see it, the more Amazing it is, and the more enjoyable the the hunt can be. Absolutely, that sounds like an incredible experience, and what a way to spend an October day. And uh, you know, those dogs, I think, are great ambassadors and gateways for people that might be curious about upland hunting. But maybe you know, if, if there's people out there that have those bird dogs, they're so wonderful to be with, and I think they can be an attractive um, entry point and point of interest for people that might be curious but don't know how to get started so there's folks out there that have dogs and you're willing to take new hunters out i think that's really powerful um so yeah absolutely well today's conversation is not about uh, bird dogs it's not about birds it's actually uh with a couple of our friends uh jess johnson and, and chelsea cassins and this is actually a throwback conversation. Uh, it's about three and a half years ago we recorded this one. This is one of those ones that got that got lost in the vault, and we're finally bringing it out. And it's one I've thought I've been thinking about for years because I just enjoyed the conversation so much. Um, talking with the two of them, you know, it's it's funny because at the time I was I I sort of set this up with Jess and then she asked if Chelsea could be part of it. And I said, absolutely. Because part of the focus of our conversation is around the formation of their group Artemis. And at the time, uh, Chelsea was the first ambassador for Artemis. And we talk about that on the podcast. And I just went out to the Artemis website um, yesterday and I looked and there are dozens of ambassadors across the country now. So uh, things have changed a little bit. So some of the conversation isn't uh, relevant uh, in that respect of uh, a lot of time has passed, but everything else really is. And I just, I enjoyed this conversation so much. We were out in Boise. Uh, you and I were out at the, we were out at the BHA rendezvous, Todd, and you, you were out there that year too. And we just sat down in this, in this restaurant one afternoon and, and just talked about what hunting means to them. Uh, we get into some really interesting, uh, you know, philosophical discussions, um, you know, in ter- in terms of talking about the, 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 the right versus the privilege of hunting and the obligations that are there. Um, and then, and then just shares a story about an elk hunt she's been on. Uh, she was on, uh, where, where, uh, well, you just have to listen and, and hear about it. But I think it's a really good discussion around hunting ethics, hunting philosophy, women in the field. Um, just a lot of, a lot of really good, rich conversation. I can't wait to hear this episode. I have mad, mad respect and admiration for Chelsea and Jess. You know, I've known Chelsea for years. 
Um, her and her husband, Tanner, they live in Eastern Oregon. She is such a great conservation leader, somebody I admire and look up to so much. And then all the great work that Jess Johnson is doing. Um, so this is really exciting. Um, those two are big, big leaders in the conservation field. And um, I'm glad you had a chance to catch up with them and can't wait to listen. Yeah, absolutely. I think what actually spurred me on to to dig back in the in the archives and find this one um, was uh, Eric Jetson from here, in Minnesota, um, uh, was out hunting in Wyoming with his daughter Natalie just a couple weeks ago. Natalie's mentor is Jess, and Jess helped her get her first elk just a couple weeks ago. And so there were some great pictures out there of of Jess and Natalie with with the elk and just the whole experience. And Eric was sharing that story. Um, and it just again an, another example of of uh, how these two women are real leaders in the outdoors in conservation, but also uh, in so many other ways, including mentoring new hunters. So, with that, let's jump into the conversation with Jess and Chelsea from Boise, Idaho. Okay, we are here in Boise, Idaho, at Lekuona which is a uh, restaurant pub in uh, downtown. And I'm joined today by Jesse Johnson and Chelsea Cassens. Did I say that correct? Got it. All right, great. Um, So both of you are part of an organization called Artemis, which I want to get into. But um, maybe let's start by giving me a little bit of background on where you both are from, where you live, and, and what's going on. So why don't we start with you, Jesse? All right. Uh, I am living in Lander, Wyoming, um, but I grew up sort of Montana, Wyoming, Northern California. Um, I'm the daughter of a ranching family, only daughter. Siblings are dogs, cows, and horses, usually. Um, grew up in these incredible spaces that I was just blessed to be able to explore and ended up coming back to Wyoming and falling in love with the landscape and realizing that that was... a uh, really sort of my calling. Excellent. No, it's, that's great. And you? And my name is Chelsea, and I am born and raised in Eastern Oregon. Um, I graduated from a town of about 300 people in that town called Imbler, Oregon. And I graduated in class about 25, went to Portland, Oregon for nursing school at University of Portland, did four years of school there and about four-ish years of working as a career in nursing there, and then moved back to Eastern Oregon with my family. We, my husband and I got married, moved, found out we were pregnant, moved back home, started new jobs, bought a new house and had our daughter all within nine months. Oh my gosh. But it was worked out perfect. We live just across the street from their nice little high school I graduated from and have a great career there and finding all sorts of new wonderful things here in Eastern Oregon. We're not here, but in Eastern Oregon. And I grew up hunting and fishing and it's one place I just had to go back to. That is, that is, uh, that's great. I, I have spent very little time up in this area of the country and, uh, it's, it's on my list because it's just, it's just so great coming in here and just seeing this area, great town, Boise. I want to explore it, um, and get up in the mountains and get out, out into the, out into the back country. But, uh, unfortunately I think it'll have to be the next trip. So, um, so we've been having some fun today and uh, learning about a lot of different things from public lands to uh, new hunters, etc. But I think what we wanted to focus on was um, Artemis 
and what it is and, 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 and why it exists, et cetera. So maybe Jesse, you are the founder uh, of, of, Out, of Artemis and uh, give us a little background on it. Well, I, I think first and foremost, Artemis is a program of the National Wildlife Federation. So that lends heavily into who we are in that we are backed by a national organization. Uh, we're very thankful for that. It's given us a lot longer reach than I think we would have had had we just sort of grown out of the soil. Um, and it was a initiative and a program that was born of the need to see women's voices more accurately represented or represented at all in a lot of the conservation and especially with the hunting and angling angle. Um, so I think often sportsmen organizations market to men first, and that's not a criticism. It's, it's just been sort of the way our culture is laid it out and how many people participate and whatnot. And now when you have that, you alienate and leave out a voice, um, and you, you disengage a voice. And I think it, women find it harder to engage with organizations at market first and for, foremost to men. Uh, and not in a, it's not a, it's not a bad criticism. It's just sort of like, that's the way things have been. And we saw this niche that there are a lot of women out there hunting and fishing. In fact, they're the fastest growing, like new hunter it's women and they're needing a place and a platform to be a voice, to bring them in and not just plug them into, uh, here's how you hunt and fish and here's a mentor system, but there is no privilege without obligation anymore. Hunting and angling is a privilege that we have here in this country, and it's a privilege we fought for. It's a privilege we've very carefully protected, and we continue to. But that obligation to protect it is there. And I think everybody that hunts and fishes um, has in some form a recognition of that. And to be able to plug in that that, uh, last little bit, sort of finish that circle of, like, you hunt, you fish, you care about this place, let's make sure it stays that way. So one of the things uh, on, on your website, this quote here uh, to you that was attributed to you, I think is interesting. It says, she feels that Artemis's focus on breaking the stereotypes that limit open dialogue around hunting and angling is a much needed direction in conservation. And that's what you talked about now. So how do you do that? I know that, Chelsea, I know you're the first Artemis ambassador, as I understand. That's what I understand too. Yes, correct. <laughs> it hasn't really been officially like out there in the media or whatever we'll say at this point yet, but that's where we're headed with this. Yeah. I'm really excited. It is now. It is now. Exactly. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Breaking news. Um, So how do you do that? How do you break those stereotypes? Well, I think first, you know, the hunting and angling stereotype by being a woman, you're already breaking it. Um, But I think a big part of that is also there has been a lot of misinformation and probably what I would consider as misrepresentation more so of hunters than anglers, but that sort of sportsman ego driven, um, sort of bad representation of what we actually do. And I think some of that is just getting out there. The people that are good hunters are not the people that are like, the loudest speakers right now. And that's usually because we're not ego driven and that kind of thing. And so unfortunately the the need for that voice to be rising to the top and to be the role model, um, is, is very much the time is ripe. You know, we, we, we need this change in how people and the, um, the narrative around hunting desperately, or I, I don't think hunting is going to survive the next 
couple hundred, you know, even a hundred yeah. years. No, not even um, 25 years. Yeah. And so by, by telling the whole story and I think I've had this phrase used around how people talk about hunting. Women have a way that is emotionally intelligent about telling a story. We have a tendency to bring more emotion into it. And that's sort of a stereotype in and of itself that isn't always correct, but it's something that we strive for with Artemis is like, let's talk about this in the sense of like what goes into a hunt and how we feel about the animals that are out there and the landscape that's out there. And why do we keep going back? And, you know, when you make mistakes, what happens there and, and how do you talk about hunting, um, and explain it to somebody that's never done it to get the idea of how deep the emotion runs in something like that. And, and really the best we can do is just try to explain it and to try and tell the whole story. Often a hunt is uh, told in a story that goes down to about five seconds. It's a sound clip of like, well, I got this really big buck. And that's not the hunt. Right. That, that last shot, that's, that's usually the cherry on top because I don't call it a successful hunt if I kill something. I call it a successful hunt if I come out and I'm some way changed fundamentally. If I've seen an incredible thing, if I've been out on public land and just like seen landscapes that leave my, you know, breath taken and that kind of thing, uh, that, that's the successful hunt for me is that story that, that time and um but the the cherry on top is that food element where when you do make that shot and you do get that animal and you spend a bunch of time packing out really heavy backpacks or maybe it's just a bird that you shot that's just amazing you go and cook that meal for your family that really pulls that whole circle in so I think hunting for me and and the way that Artemis views it is it's a way to put you into the landscape. It's it's you as a human participating directly with the ecology around you. You are a predator. You are sometimes prey also. And it's the first time that you get to interact as part of the ecology, not just a steward of it, which is why I always take issue when people say we're stewards of the land. I'm like, no, we're part of it. We're more than stewards. I really like that when you and I talked about that earlier. I think that is a really important positioning. So Chelsea, you grew up hunting and fishing also? Yeah. Okay. I grew up. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, because not that doesn't always happen, obviously, with no. women. It's just maybe the, the boys who are taken out. So tell, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Well, my dad is one of four brothers, so there's a total of five of them. And um, their father, my granddad, grew up in an area where they he took them out into the wilderness and focused a lot on conservation. And they hunted and fished. And anything from – they're just generalized hunters. They upland birds to mule deers in the high country to cow elk just really whatever was there to provide food and all my uncles still hunt to this day maybe some less than others but they still miss it those are the stories they talk about my cousins it's kind of dissipated through them a little bit maybe on how much their dad continued it whether it was careers kind of got in the way or multiple kids got in the way or whatever where they even moved to my dad has never left the Grand Ronde Valley he's lived there his whole 62 years 62 years now he's never never left and so you know it was just me and my brother and that's what we did it was very part of normal our normal part of our life to go out there and hunt and fish and even bird dog for my dad like one of my most distinct memories is we were my dad had a buck tag and after school we're going for a drive we're driving up the freeway my dad has just eagle eyes like you would not believe he can spot anything he's great to take on any hunt i'm jealous yes he's very great and spotted a buck just from the freeway and i could just i don't even think we pulled over if i remember right my brother and i were young maybe 
nine and seven. Anyway, maybe even younger than that. Anyway, we kept, he spotted it from the rig going 65 miles an hour, takes the next exit. And I could tell he's forming a plan in his head. Just like, all right, I'm going to need you guys to do me a favor. I was like, okay, dad, we'll, we'll <laughs> see about this. He's like, I'm going to park the rig here and I need you guys to walk down this little skid road. So we take the exit and blah, 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 blah. Parks the car, truck, maybe even, maybe if we we're lat lucky, parks it. We walk, my brother and I walk down the skid road and he's like, actually, I'm going to need you to take about 10 minutes time before, before you leave. So my, my dad actually leaves from the truck before us, goes up and goes over. Um, my brother and I leave in what we assume is 10 minutes time. And we just walk through the woods calmly and just our normal, like what we do. And all of a sudden we hear a gunshot. <laughs> and my brother and I, my dad is just, he's so in tune with the world around him. It seems like that he, he knew where that buck was at. He knew which way to send the kids and he knew where <laughs> he needed to be. So that buck would come running from us. And sure enough. And I just remember sucking in my gut, like I've been shot. <laughs> and then I look at my brother and we're both fine. And sure enough, that buck had went up and over the little hillside there. And my dad was standing, my brother and I just start walking towards the, where we assumed dad was, yeah. and there he was there with he his was buck. With yeah, his, and it was yeah. a gorgeous buck. It was a beautiful buck. And so I've grown up with that in my life forever, and hear you guys say something maybe 25 years from now, like, it scares me. I mean, yeah. my whole yeah. community of people in my valley are very passionate hunter and fishermen, and, you know, whether or not they have different avenues to get there and stuff, but it's very part, very much a part of the area I grew up in. Did your dad, so in that, that scenario there, did, um, did you both stay there while your, while your dad field dressed the oh, animal? Absolutely. So if you were anything, we're having process. to hold legs down okay. and yeah, hold that tighter. <laughs> don't let it go. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, dad, the smells sometimes when you're that age. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. Yeah. That was definitely some part of our life of helping dad. Yeah. That's great. And my dad was so great about it. He was very tender footed on, you know, making sure the weather was right to take mm -hmm. young kids out mm -hmm. or making sure it was a place maybe we'd have a little campfire, you know, when he's field dressing. I have other yeah. memories of buck hunting out there with dad. And, he, you know, when he, after he got one, then we'd have a little campfire where we held legs down and field dressed it and stuff like that. So my dad was really great about not making us get up early if we didn't want to go, you know, but he also was just like, okay, just remember it could be this morning when it happens. That's and you're like, you're right. You're right. It could be this morning when the actual excitement part happens. And it's like, just kind of said, you know, it's not, that's not the end of the story. And I think that's why I was drawn to Artemis is women are such great storytellers. And to be honest, some of the moments where I've harvested an animal, are like the moments I black out and it's the stories around it, like yeah, leading absolutely. up to it that I remember and the light hitting that and the stories afterwards where I remember it. Hey listeners, this is Mark and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland Bird Hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash Upland Birds to get more information. Now, there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now, back to the podcast. Let me, let me ask you, too, a question uh, on something, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot in recent years as 
digital media, we utilize it a lot at Modern Carnivore and do a lot of different things with it. And a lot of people with in every space of lifestyle are, are utilizing it these days. I personally have a perspective that is when in, in the lifestyle of hunting and fishing and especially hunting, when it comes to the experience of actually going out and hunting and 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 taking that animal, that that is a very personal experience. Absolutely. And and something that is not meant to be, let's say, broadcast out, but something that is that is um, meant for you and that animal, and and it's to be shared in the form of story, like you just said, in the spoken word, and and. So I, I guess I, I don't like the idea of, of capturing that on film. Again, we use, we use film a lot, um, but it, it's, uh, it's, everybody has a different perspective on it and, and, and a different line. But I'm curious, what, 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 are, what are your thoughts on it? I, I would fully agree with it's, it's so sensitive. And there's, there's a, I don't know that there is a right way to do it, but I, I think the only sort of side note that I would say is that we're in an era where um, I mean the, the numbers show that people don't read as much anymore they watch you know the highest posts that are done are these informational videos or their photos and um, when when we're trying to get a large population of uh, people to re-engage with something like hunting there is an element where film can help and there's an element where film can hinder. And it is a really sensitive gray line that I don't know. There's, there's not a direction that says this is right or wrong. You really have to, I think, go with your gut and feel it out. And, um, Agreed. the, the storytelling though, like, you know, you can film anything, but you better be telling the story along with it. And, and there's an element in how to put, portray stuff of, um, it's really hard to tell somebody who's not a hunter why, you like want to stand on top of a ridge and crow to the moon when you shoot something and you have a good shot. Like it's hard for somebody who hasn't like done that to understand the celebration element of an animal going down and going down fast. I think that's really hard to come across. And so when you are doing film and we are doing photos, I think being sensitive to that and recognizing that the celebration mode is for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you capture that in film, there better be the respect and the responsibility that's a lot heavier on your shoulders than the celebration. Um, because people, it doesn't, it doesn't portray in a photograph, um, why you're celebrating that doesn't come across. And so I think you have to be really sensitive with how you portray it. Um, you know, how, how you weigh in about it, the story you tell around it. And, and I've heard a lot of people say like, well, you know, sort of that like, you know, well, that's tough. Like we're hunters and we have to stick together. And if people don't like it, well, then they can just go take right. a hike. And, and that's, that's why we're in this like issue right here is we're not taking that time to reach across the table and be like, I understand your trepidation here. If all I knew of hunters is what I see on marketing materials, I'd hate it too. <laughs> like, right. and, and it's terrible how we've, we've done a terrible job at representing what we actually do and what we actually care about. And, and so telling that story being sensitive to it. I mean, and, and I, the way that our culture is, you just kind of have to feel it out. If it's, you know, sometimes I've done 
like I've, I've killed an animal that had a lung shot and had a lot of blood that was around the mouth or the face and frothy. And it's very gory when you like look at the animal. And, um, if I've taken a photo, I've changed it to black and white. Mm -hmm. And even something as simple as that can like, kind of like give a barrier to somebody that goes, they stop focusing on the blood, which is the part where your eye would usually go. I think it's something that's not a hunter. You're like, Oh, that's really like macabre. Mm -hmm. And then you start opening up and you look at the landscape a little more. And you know, it's, there's no right answer to that. And, and the, the sad fact is, is that we're digital media era and film hits high and people really key into that. And so it's, it's an ability to use, um, a medium to get a message across, but there is one right way. Um, and there's a lot of wrong ways. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think it is gray, and I think it's difficult. And I think you, you, what you just said, though, is a good perspective on it, which is just being aware of and sensitive to people might react negatively to it. And knowing that we're all ambassadors, if we, if we hunt and fish, to, to the world for this community. And let's, let's just be sensitive to that and understanding that people might have certain challenges and issues. If you have any thoughts on it, Chelsea? No, I'm 100% with you in the sense of, you know, I think people need to realize that what we do when we hunt and fish is a privilege, and and sometimes they need to watch out what they put out there on social media, and you know, it could depend on their audience. They could have a private profile, and they know who's going to see it, but sometimes it's easy to just screenshot things and put things out there. Right. I, I, and I would argue that nothing's private. No, and you know, that's like, and that's right. the thing. It's like absolutely I've heard right. that argument. It's yeah. like, oh well, my profile's private, yeah. and everybody's a hunter on it, and that's I'm not buying it. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Absolutely. It's it's tough, and I try. I'm definitely more mindful of it with new hats or titles I put with me, but I'm also with my kids too. They can look back at ages. You know, I look back at photos of my dad. They're black and white, and that's you know, and hopefully the story goes along with it somewhere. I'll write it down with what he says or my grandpa said but for me it's out there with a caption or what somebody else would put with it so it's or it's trial and error right now and yeah yeah there's a lot going on so um jesse i believe you are a you're primarily a bow hunter correct mm-hmm. yes i'm a i it is nothing to do with how i feel about guns i um actually recently shot my first duck with a gun <laughs> um but I I picked up a bow and I actually in a previous life was a ballet dancer and um, the discipline that goes along with dance is very similar to that that goes along with bow hunting but the benefit of bow hunting is I was a ballet dancer and I was very much an outdoors girl and it was kind of a lifestyle that warred with each other and uh, with bow hunting I get to have the discipline the sort of solitude the lifestyle build around it but I also get to be outside and be 10 feet from a bugling elk or, you know, out in some incredible habitat that really is where my soul comes on fire. But, um, it, it, uh, I'm only a bow hunter probably eight years now. And I was very lucky. I had a mentor that, uh, I always tease that he, Mr. Miyagi'd me mm-hmm. like karate kid. <laughs> he had me blindfolded in front of like a target for three weeks. And we were arguing back and forth cause I just wanted to shoot something. And he was like, no, you have to learn form and you have to learn, you know, get the bow that fits you and, and learn form first. And, and t- the targets will come later. That's great. That's great. And you, I mean, you very much are deep into that. You're, you make your own arrows, right? From blank shafts, et cetera. So you really She'll love put on it. clinics. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, it is, I, I think the best thing I can say about bow hunting is like no one person can tell you everything about it because none of us know everything. It's very nuanced and it's, um, 
I, I like it is the it's the fly fishing of yeah. Uh, hunting in the sense of like you can take it as far or as not as far as you want to go and um, I've just really made it it's something that I enjoy doing it's part of a lifestyle for me Um, and it's it's turned into an infatuation that turned into a career yeah that's 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 great it it um, I think everybody can come at this lifestyle from their own perspective and make it their own like what you just said um, in Minnesota, and myself included, I, there's, there's, I would say the majority of the population are outdoor generalists, hunt and fish based on the season, based on the opportunity, um, bow hunting, hunting with gun, fishing, fly fishing, bass fishing, etc. Um, did you, Chelsea? Did you grow up? And and what do you, what did you grow up with? And what do you do now? I'm primarily? kind of the same way as the rest of the Michigan. There, it sounds like, but I younger I remember my dad shooting his bow in the backyard and I don't really know the exact stories behind it but he had a bad experience or a bad season and his ways kind of changed more towards rifle um so I have more rifle and shotgun um and when actually when I met my husband um he introduced me to bow hunting and it was more just kind of for fun the first year I think the first year he got me a bow I was didn't even want to like pull it back out in public like I think he (laughs) wasn't even around when I was there I think I had like all sorts of things strapped to my wrist so I wouldn't dry fire the bow and I was doing it in the living room when he wasn't there and just practicing pulling it back and then I missed a hunting season there we'll say and then the next year I think I took my bow to camp still didn't have a tag but just kind of let some arrows loose at camp while everybody was else everybody else was practicing and through the years now I have I have drawn archery tags my first one's actually an archery antelope tag so I was reaching for the stars on that one yeah yeah we start out with a bang um and that was unsuccessful but it was probably one of the highlights of my life in the sense of hunting but that was Oregon yes yeah yep it was um was lucky with the Oregon it's hard to draw an antelope tag the year before I had drew a uh, antelope tag with probably I think 14 points so 14 years of putting in I drew um, an antelope tag got a great antelope on that tag and that was actually that is the year my husband and I got married we had just been married and so anyway drew that tag and then the next year I was like oh what can I put in for that maybe I could draw a tag and Oregon it's hard and that antelope tag at the time was you did you didn't have to draw it on any points it was either sex um, antelope tag so I successfully drew the tag <laughs> and I also had a or in Oregon the units we were in had an over the t- over the counter buck tag and um, over the counter elk tag for those units and so I my pocket was heavy was of like a, full pockets, yeah, yeah. Of an antelope tag and a buck tag and a cow tag or a, actually it was either sex in those units that we were hunting so that's kind of been a little I am yet to harvest anything with my bow but I had just the time of my life and really great times. My dad and my husband joined in later in into that season and stuff. I think it was about a month long season. It's a hard tag to fill, but we had so much fun and I never released an arrow, but I had a lot of fun. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. I think that's something that, that a lot of people don't understand mm-hmm. if, if they're, if they haven't hunted or fish, uh, just the, the joy of the experience, regardless of your outcome. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I had high hopes. Like you definitely go in with like, I'm going to have six point bull 
<laughs> on the top of my Camry. I'm gonna have a big buck and I'm gonna have an antelope. Like it's gonna be a fun drive home. And of course, <laughs> empty-handed. But yeah. it was so much fun. And the pictures that go along with it, I love taking pictures to kind of relate back to. And I, that might be one of the times where I really dove into taking photos on a hunt and stuff. But just the stories: bugling elk, oh. antelope running across us. We, my dad had. I'm going to do you mind if I tell a story with Absolutely. it? I'm a storyteller. Well, I like to tell stories. That's why we I like you. to hear stories. <laughs> my dad, I think about three weeks prior to the hunt had his hip replacement. This was his second hip replacement, other hip for just age and genetics. And we went, we, we also had sage grouse tags too. My dad and I just, we were at early morning hunt. We got up some sage grouse. My dad was packing the shotgun. He got his sage grouse and we go back to the truck, dress them out right then. Best tip we heard about how to take care of sage grouse is take care of them right away. And a few minutes later, a truck comes up behind us, and it was the state game warden. And he was like, oh, we got to call in that you, somebody's out here hazing elk with a gun. I was like, oh, well, actually, we, we did use a gun legally. And here's the tags approved, and here's what we harvested. And, you know, so we kind of talked, and at first it was kind of like, oh, wonderful, I'm so glad somebody called it in, because it's also archery season at the same time. So we're like, oh, that's nice that somebody's calling right. that in, yeah. Paying Th- attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So we sit there and talk, and my dad could talk to anybody and had a great conversation with the OSP officer, and and we're sitting there. We're, turns out the OSP officer actually has the same tag I have as well. And so we're sitting there glassing, and we've kind of figured out that there's an antelope in the area, blah, blah, blah. And we're glassing, we can see one. And my dad, like I said, he just knows the way the land moves. He knows the way the critters move. And so we kind of ended the conversation with the officer and decided to drive over around and then make a pretty good hike and maybe possibly cut him off. And we have one of those Montana decoys that that was the big plan. We didn't really sit. We sat in a blind some. But anyway, we had the Montana decoy and we were going to stand next to each other. And that's how it was going to happen. And it was also during the rut for antelope. And so we were pretty sure, and we watched some buck behavior with does where a buck would chase, if a buck came into a herd, then other, another, that buck would get chased off or something would happen. We're just, they'd be running at each other where hopefully maybe somebody would be aggressive in, during the rut. And so we drive to where we think we need to be. We go on a pretty good trek and we go up and around the little hillside and the ridge and we're in sagebrush country and we get to where we feel like we probably headed them off. And we're sitting there and we're sitting there and we're kind of like, all right, we're, you know, we're, we're standing next to each other because he's carrying the Montana decoy. I have the tag. And, uh, as the time goes on, my dad's like, oh, we must've missed him. You know, we were there for a while. We must've missed him. Kind of kept an eye out just, and same with going along with the storytelling. It's like, I've, I was like, oh, this is where, this is how sage grouse sleep. You just see the piles of, what do you even call sage grouse poop? <laughs> that works. Yeah. Scat. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Around the, around the junipers and around the sage and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, as we decide to call it quits and start walking back to, the, back to the rig, my dad and I kind of, you know, just venture off from each other. And by now we're like 50 yards apart and kind of looking for arrowheads, looking to the ground, just doing our own thing. And all of a sudden I hear my dad screaming at the top of his lung, just, child. No, he's screaming, antelope. And I'm like, well, there are none now. <laughs> and I look over at him and he's squatted down. And all I remember is like, he just had his hip replaced. I'm no, and the nurse in me is like, that is violating all the rules. <laughs> like, this is not okay. And he's squatted down and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. And he's, so he's squatted behind the Montana decoy and we're too far apart at this point. And I see this buck antelope, gorgeous buck antelope running right at him, just running full bore right at him. And I'm just like whoa and I know and there's a juniper tree between us and I know I'm not going to be able to get to him so I try to get put the juniper tree between me and the buck 
and I don't know if the bucks, me moving, like triggered the buck to be like, well, what's that? And so he started to come towards me. And so now I'm trying to like play hopscotch with this. I don't even know if that's what I was really trying to play with him. I don't know what I was trying to do. But anyway, move, trying to keep this tree and try to get to a point where I can maybe make a like draw on this antelope, but he was still too far for me, but I am just shaking. And my, and my dad's still screaming, I'm pretty sure. And I just remember how beautiful blackface this antelope was, just glistening high, just, oh, he was so gorgeous. I'll never forget. And he was just looking right at me like, well, what are you? That's an antelope, but what are you? <laughs> I'm not sure what you are. And my dad just squatted behind it. And I just remember kind of balancing to the point of like, okay, now I'm going to step out from behind this juniper, try to range, and I'm pretty sure I was getting the sky and the mountains and everything around. And the dope, or the do- and the two does that he was with came running by him and pick him up. I think if he wouldn't have had those does, he really would have stuck around. But he picked them up, run with, and they just run off. And Dad and I were just shaking in our boots, and we were just like, well, that's what we wanted to happen if we were standing next to each other. Like, it was just, right. and like, it was probably the first few days into the season and never really played out like that again. But we were confident. We were like, that's how it was supposed to work out. Now we will, and I was attached to his hip the rest of the time. Wherever that decoy was, I was, because I was certain it was going to work out. But. but what a great story. What a great oh, experience. My, oh, it was so great. And the little things about how I remember that buck just looked at me and how black his face was and his nose was and just how great he looked. He was beautiful. Beautiful. Animals don't move on a clock. You know, like, I mean, they do, but it's not like a wristwatch. It's yeah. not like how we do. They move with the, sort of nature's timings. And I think, I, I think there's a hard argument that time stops when you're around animals like that sometimes yeah. and yeah. I've, I've had similar instances with elk and antelope and mule deer but coming back and uh that story like I think it's really uh that that ability to tell that and and you know I'm like sitting on the edge of my chair you guys can't see me via podcast but I'm sitting on the edge of my chair <laughs> um we've all been there and I think I think as as humanity and as our history you know the first the first things told around campfires in you know pre sort of modern cultures times is people people go and they come and tell hunting stories and tell about these experiences about these interactions with the animals and you know along those lines about what you saw and like the detail that you remember um we have been doing that for so long the 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 cave paintings you can look at the animals are incredible detail for for the technology that they had to put that up there. Rock on rock, yeah. And the people are stick figures. The animals have always been the focus. And, and it's that animal that, like, stops the time. And, um, you know, whether whether you come home with meat or not, granted, meat's always better, but yeah. uh, you come home with a really gem of an experience and a story where time stopped and, and you had this incredible sort of, like, soul-changing moment. Absolutely, yeah. So, Jesse, you and I talked earlier a little bit about basically current culture society where we're at in the insulation um, to the natural world and and the challenges that creates and what what we feel I, I know all of us here feel the necessity to keep people connected to to that natural environment um, so what are your thoughts relative to that maybe to share with everyone why well, there is very little wrong with me that a day outside doesn't fix um, you know, I like as far as like if I have a really rough day or a stressful day or um, just you know kind of wake up in a funk. Like usually, I can get rid of that by going outside. And uh, absolutely, if I can get rid of that, when I can go outside and hunt. But I think some of that is like we have these two sort of warring uh, ideals in that humanity deals with. We have culture, which is very based on 
how we how we see ourselves and then we have the natural world which is how we actually are and um i think humanity makes a mistake of exempting ourselves from the laws of nature but -hmm. nature doesn't do the same and so you know we we talk about like what's important in today's world is, you know, politics and you have like the social structure and what am I going to have for, you know, like, what am I going to wear to school the next day? Or, you know, things that, 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 that clutter our conscience as opposed to like when you are outside and it's like, do I have food? Do I have water? Do I have shelter? And the, uh, the essentials for humanity get very sort of diluted, um, when you look at it through a cultural lens. And I say that in the sense of like, what we deem as important as opposed to what is actually important to survive. And when you are hunting, when you are outside, some of that clutter goes away. And I think that has a very strong argument for things like mental health and the ability to reconnect with um, your essence on this earth. Like every person has a part to play. When you are hunting, you are predator and prey in that sense. And, um, no matter what happens in your life, you still fit in in this world. And that is not reflected in the way our culture looks. Is like, you know, if you don't fulfill a certain role, you don't fit in. Um, and I think we have this ability to really go back to our roots and find a place that is accepting of us, however harsh and uh, maybe... I, I guess harsh is the right way to say it. However harsh it is, you know, life, life and death and that whole circle that goes around it is... Uh, not an easy pill to swallow for somebody that's been insulated from that. But it is a place that slams both feet back onto the ground and says, I'm here, I'm essential, I'm necessary. And um, Artemis, something I love about why we picked this name, is she's the goddess of the hunt. She's the goddess of like protecting wildlife and wild places, but she's also the goddess of birth. So she has this uh, sort of in the hunt, she the death element because you can't, that that's just a harsh reality hunting equals in the death of something and then you have this life element and and i think our culture has an inability to look at things um in a larger lens we say you know i think we like to say oh it's life and we fight everything that has anything to do with death and being accepting of that and sort of pulling it into the larger story of things is there is no life without death there's no death without life like they need each other they are equal ends of the sort of the same story and uh our, our insulation from that and our ability, inability to accept that, I think, has led us to this place where, and I think hunters plug in on a little deeper level because we are more familiar with death. But we also become, like, come under more scrutiny because we are comfortable with something that most of the population is not. And so it, uh, it really brings in this uh, element of hunters are under the microscope because of that. And, and understandably so because we're living in a culture that does everything in its ability to avoid anything to do with death. I think you're. Exa- I think you nailed it right there in terms of the scrutiny that uh, that the hunting community gets under because of um, the main culture of society nowadays not being comfortable with death, and and I think uh, I think culturally we do that to our own peril of not of not recognizing, acknowledging, and embracing it because it is the other side of life. And, 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 and if you have an appreciation and, and throughout the history of humanity, it's been a part of it that's been um, respected, acknowledged, um, 
and 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 is part of the culture. And I think it's just in recent years where it's society, a celebration, yeah, yeah, absolutely. exactly. Mm-hmm. It really it, it it gives you an opportunity to celebrate life, to recognize you know the the gravity of of death. Um, creates an appreciation and understanding and a cherishing of life that much more. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's what we're missing. And I think that's what hunting and fishing and just that outdoor connection does. I think there's a a big element, too, of, like, we've had an... Like, some of the insulatory things is even how we phrase and talk about stuff. Um, I think non-consumptive is not something any human on this earth can claim and and to live is to consume to to exist here is to consume something and and whether you're vegan whether you're vegetarian whether you're you know don't have any food constrictions or you eat wild meat whatever it is you have an impact and and you and there are varying scales of that and i think on top of that you have this uh language barrier that is around this where we separate things as consumptive and non-consumptive or non-impactful or, um, and that just, that just is not a reality. There's nothing that we do here that doesn't have an impact. It's like a law of science reaction. There is an equal and opposite reaction period. And, um, we don't have a language that reflects that. And we also don't have a language that, uh, acknowledges things as an, on an equal platform to us. So we talk about being stewards of something, not being part of something. We talk about how that tree, rather than saying that tree is necessary to me, that tree is like part of my world and part of my ecosystem. And, and I will say like indigenous languages talk about, uh, objects, animals, and things as having a spirit, as having, uh, an ability to interact with itself around you. So, so you are family with the world as opposed to being a steward of it. And I think when you are part of something and you're part of a family, you're much more inclined to take care of it as you are than if you're just a steward and, and well, what I do affects it, but what you do doesn't affect me. Um, so I think that like impact is very big and, and a language barrier around it. And then talking about like you know, hunting is, is, I would almost say, arguably less impactful than most other food diets because it is taking one animal that you know has been out and living in an ecosystem and contributing to this place and having a good natural life as according to that. And, and you haven't displaced other animals out of its habitat to raise it. You haven't displaced um, or put false pesticides or whatever into the soil to grow it it's it's a place that it fits there and um so it's it's a balancing act and and there's no one good answer to it because if everybody in the world hunted that wouldn't be good either yeah so and going back to that a little bit how hunters don't displace as much you know we harvest a deer and an elk, hopefully, and I'd love if we harvested more for maybe Italian sausage and, <laughs> you know, some fun brats or something like that. But that feeds my family, and it's just one, you know. Here and there we have some chicken, but think of all the chicken out there that's being harvested, you know, or pig or lamb. And by all means, we eat it, but that that one elk feeds our family for a sub- uh, for the year. You know, yeah. there are other years where we're like, oh, man, is September coming or is rifle season coming cross our fingers you know but so you are you are your family is is let's say north of 90 percent uh wild game type of uh, for the meat in your diet that's great oh yeah every night and we in the and mostly because of the cost of how much we saw processing was in the years i can remember my family's changed to we process our own meat just because of the cost of it and that comes down to you know i grew up with hunting camps where sometimes all my uncles harvested spike 
elk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's five elk and you send it to the meat grinder and mm-hmm. do all that and have it sent back to you. You know, it adds up. And so we ended up pitching in and everybody bought the big Cabela's meat grinder and we process it and it's a whole night of setting up picnic tables and your hands are cold and it can be something that you don't really look forward to, but it's changed so much of the years of, you know, we didn't look forward to it, but now it's changed for us of like this, I it's such fun. more of a connection. It is great. Oh Absolutely. Yeah, I've had, we like, don't dread it anymore. Maybe it's <laughs> because I'm of age and I can yeah, have a right, beer right. and my fingers are tougher. <laughs> beer but, helps any situation and, there. Yeah. <laughs> and having, maybe it's because, maybe I didn't appreciate it because I was, this is like realization at the moment. You know, I wasn't the one cooking it. My parents were the ones cooking it and they were the ones buying the other groceries. Like me, now I have a five-year-old and a two and a half-year-old and I know how much it costs to raise a family. And yeah, we put a lot of money into hunting and fishing and conservation, but man, we spend a lot less on meat. You know, we spend a lot on fruits and vegetables and we forage, but still. And it's a healthy lifestyle for kids to like, I mean, some of that is like, I, my dad was a hunter, but I grew up ranch kid and we would go out on, um, my dad called them nature walks, but like, you know, go out and it gets kids outside and it gets you plugging in rather than plugging into nature rather than plugging into an outlet and um having a family that reflects that man that's just incredible the first bear i harvested actually my daughter was was she about to turn a year no she probably had just turned a year and my daughter was with me so the picture of the black bear i harvested was a beautiful color phase bear my daughter was on my lap you know at at the on the with the picture it was just honest and real yeah yeah. and she I, i have a video of her as we're processing the animal or you know, gutting it and taking care of it. My daughter's on my mom's lap and yelling, bear, bear, bear. It's one of my favorite videos. And, you know, I then it. I pan over and there's the bear I just harvested. And it's a lot of fun. I, kids are, they're so real with it. And my kids turn on, you know, the apps on the TV now and YouTube pops up. My daughter's like, oh, elk hunting. <laughs> like, that's what you guys have on. It's not, you know, Elmo's not across the screen first thing anymore. It's like, but they love it. And they, they bugle with us or they try to quack on a duck call it's kids are so much fun and bringing it into their food and trout like I swear they won't eat it and then all of a sudden the next day they're like that was good what was that I'm like I served that yesterday to you that trout and yet you wouldn't eat it then but it is very well probably 90% of our intake and that's mostly just because of I don't know in the area I'm in is that's very very popular and our neighbors have meat lockers for us you know like People are very passionate about hunting and fishing in the area I grew up in. And so to hear the threats that are out there, sometimes I like to play in a little naive bubble, but it's very real. And some of the things that maybe those individuals even put out there on social media, I see media or what, excuse me, so what they put out on social media or what the comments they put on other posts definitely can harm something that they're passionate about. And you just have to really be careful. It's a privilege. It really is. And I've started to treat it more like a privilege through the years instead of a right. And because at any moment, you know, my finances could even be gone Mm -hmm. where I can't do these things. Mm -hmm. And I might have to rely on other places for food, but hunting is definitely a privilege and financially it, it has it has its ups and downs. It does. And I, and, I, and I understand and respect that as an argument for some people, you know, that's gotten too expensive. In Oregon, I, I can agree. But at the same time, 
you know, where your passion lies. It's, I would argue that it's gotten expensive because the places that are easy to do it and the access to such places is the barrier. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the gear in and of itself, yes, it can be pricey, but um, you can, I think you can get by sometimes with less gear than we do. I think we're in that age of like gear heads. Um, I'm totally guilty. But uh, that the, the barrier of being able to go, which is why, you know, we're all here at this uh, conservation sort of conference right now talking about public lands and how important that is to the to the hunter and the angler and the ability to access them and and um my boyfriend grew up in chicago and was a self-taught hunter and i i find a lot of inspiration in that he packed his bags and looked at the map and tried to find the most uh the largest chunk of public land on there and it was wyoming where like good 48 percent public land and um, he packed his bags and came out there because as, as a hunter trying to figure things out in, he was in Illinois and Wisconsin and um, it's not easy. It's, mm-hmm. it's not easy, the access and, and no matter how good it is, our, our, our public land and our places to do this is dwindling and we only have a finite resource there. There is never going to be more public land than there is today. Yeah, it doesn't right. grow. And um, that, that barrier is, is one that I would say is almost more important than the one of like how much it costs to hunt. It's, it's how do you get there and where to do it and are there animals there? And, and that's the, uh, I think everything else can fall in line eventually if you can get to the place. Well, and I think, I think the cost factor, it, everything's relative. Yeah. You look at, look at what we spend today um, on just media and cell phone access and those types of things. Those are those are highly expensive things that didn't exist 20 years ago. And, coffee and, every day. Yeah, coffee every day. There you go. I mean, there's there's just so many aspects, and it all comes down to priorities. What do you what do you have as priorities? And I always I always like to caution people, like you said, of we can all get caught up in the gear gear craze. You know, I love to get some of the newest things. They're so fun to do. But you don't have to have it. And when it comes to hunting or fishing, you just need something something very simple. Simple setup you can get you out there. You need a sharp stick and a string. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, Jesse, I'd, I'd like you to talk, uh, I guess, talk about or, or, or share your story of you had a tough situation this last fall. And, and I think it's one of those things that... Um, not a lot of people are always honest about and or share too often, but I think it's a good story to share because you've got a really good perspective on it. Yeah, I, uh, and this is when um, it, it took a lot to kind of what I would say is like figure out how to tell this story. It's something we as hunters all experience at some point in our hunting timeline. Um, I was elk hunting and I was out uh, with a bow and I had this incredible experience with an elk that came in very close and presented a very good shot at about 10 yards. Um, and I, I practiced shooting my bow throughout the year. I don't go into season having just picked up the bow. It's been in my hands all year and felt very confident about this shot and had a very, very good shot on an elk um, that was reflected and sort of showed up later as a good shot. And I... In hindsight, I look back and I think that there was not a ton of adrenaline around the shot. I think there was enough ambient noise happening in the forest that the elk did not jump the string, which is when they sort of startle at the sound of a bow going off. And honestly, to my knowledge, he didn't even recognize he'd been shot. And 
So I made a very good shot on a huge elk at about 10 yards um, broadside and watched him with archery equipment it's and I think with any hunt but especially with archery equipment sort of the general rule is to wait 30 minutes before moving or pursuing the animal and a lot of that is to give them the space to die in a way that isn't like you don't want to bump them if they're injured so they run across who knows where or uh, have more adrenaline in them you just don't want to harass the wild like you want to give them as peaceful and as quick a death as possible and that that's really what we strive for and so I was watched him for 15 minutes before he went out of my view and he was sort of tipping his head back and forth and weaving and very unstable on his legs and I could just tell that he was like clearly dying and and we had a cow call sort of off the hill and he went off towards that cow call and sort of disappeared from view in the last 15 minutes of that 30 minute time of waiting and I was really confident on the shot. My hunting partner looked at me, turned around, said, "You couldn't have shot that better. That was a great shot. Let's go. Get, let's go find your elk." When that 30 minutes came up, and I came around the bend that he disappeared around, and you know, was all ready to see him sort of laying down. You know, that 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 feeling when you walk up on an animal and he wasn't there, and it uh, it just like it it I can't explain. Like I had this like cold sweat and pit of dread that just kind of like settled into my stomach um of like not even second guessing that that's the thing that I keep going back to is I never second guessed the shot it was so close it was something I knew I'd done but confusion this cold dread of like something happened what just happened and I then spent the next three and a half days looking for this animal. And and I say that like in the sense of that I probably covered in the mid-20s to like miles walked up and down this hill. We were about four miles into the backcountry. Um, and I just, I just took this grid searching. By the end of it, I knew every blade of grass, every bird's nest, everything. You know, I knew that he wasn't there. And looked and looked and looked and um, ended up running into another hunter that was down there who actually incredibly, in the midst of all of this, and, and I guess something I neglected to say is that when I shot this elk, we were surrounded by hundreds of elk. We had cows bugling on every, or not bugling, cows, cows chirping on any side of us. We had maybe nine different herd bulls bugling around this basin. It was a cacophony of sound. I've never experienced something like that before. So it was just this incredible day to start with. And um, this hunter we ran into was down in this with us the next day and put his bow down and helped look for the animal with me because he'd experienced a similar loss and knew what it felt like to not find your animal. And that was, he didn't know me. Um, I'd never met him before. And he just like no questions asked, put his bow down and just like covered miles with us looking for it. And, um, end of that third day, having covered as much ground as we had, I kind of said, well, I don't know what happened. I don't know where he is. Um, I, you know, couldn't just keep like looking in these same places that I knew he wasn't. And, um, said that was it. And the next day that hunter, left a note on my hunting partner's truck that said, Hey, we found your bull. And I flagged it. And, you know, by that time it's four and a half, five days past when I shot him and the meat was very much spoiled. I knew that and had a real big sort of realization that I was going to go down and find this bull. And, and I guess like sort of a side note is that 
that first day, the first couple hours when we couldn't find that elk, I'd punch my tag. I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I remember mm-hmm. your social media post like three or four days in before mm-hmm. you found it. Yeah. You told that little quick story and then you notched your tag. And I just remember like I cried for Jesse and mm-hmm. I'm like five states away or whatever. And I, <laughs> she's just so well written and what she puts out there. I was just like, Jess, you're so great at this. And then X amount of days later, this comes out that you had found it. Yeah. Now, now quick, quick explain for those people who don't know what you mean by that. You notch your tag so they understand. So, so as a hunter, you know, we get, you get one tag, one animal in the sense of like you put in for tags in certain areas or you get a general tag and that gives you the legal ability to go out and take one animal. And those tags can sometimes specify gender. They can sometimes specify age as reflected by like antler points like however many points they have or it can you know species you know you don't get a tag that you can at least in wyoming you don't get a tag that you can shoot an elk or a deer on you get a tag that's like you can shoot an elk or you can go get a deer tag you shoot a deer um or you can get both of those tags and get an elk and a deer it's you don't have a crossover there but often i think people make not great shots on animals and and I would I would argue that if you wound an animal it is your responsibility to notch that tag which means you were telling the legal system mm-hmm. I took my animal yes. regardless of whether I find him or, or not. not and and even to the point of like had I not found this elk I would have notched it Maybe he had lived through something. Some freak accidents happen in hunting. Sometimes shots happen that you just have no explanation. An arrow can hit a rib and take a 90-degree turn and just graze the outside of the animal. And um, you just don't know. But the, the thing is, is that you don't know. And it is your, your ethic and your, like, absolute rule, I would say, as a hunter, to, to notch that tag, which is say, use that tag up tell the legal system that you have have taken your chance you have fulfilled it in one way or another and removed that animal from the population um so i had notched that tag that first night but was you know i didn't get much sleep that week (laughs) was up um it just sits on your soul pretty heavy when you don't find an animal and he was a very he was a large six by six bull he was huge and went back and finally found him and and by this time it was too late to bring the meat out, which is really first and foremost, like if you gave me the options, you could take the meat or you could take the antlers. That's not even a question. It's take the meat every time. And I didn't really know what to do when faced with the choice of like, you can't take the meat because it's spoiled. What do I do here? And I ended up taking the antlers and the ivories and the ivories are sort of the eye teeth on the elk. They're remnants of what used to be tusks. Um, And so they're used in a lot of like, Sometimes you use them in jewelry. Native Americans used them a lot in a lot of their sort of like uh, traditional and cultural things that they they did around that. And I I took the antlers and the ivories because I needed something to remind myself about this hunt. And I think it's important that we share stories of losses and mistakes made because you only learn – you can learn from mistakes. And and it's sometimes a hard lesson. And and I would say – that, that dogged ability to find your animal. Like, always follow your shot. If you take a shot and your animal isn't where you think it's going to be, it is your responsibility to go find it and figure out what happened. Um, and that, you know, look for a blood trail. Uh, what I should have done is in those 15 minutes he stood dying in front of me, rather than being incredibly confident in my shot, I should have been putting arrow after arrow after arrow in him. And um, it... it 
is a lesson you learn later, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, and, and took those antlers to, to be a memento and to be a lesson to me, but also because when people come and they see antlers and they go, wow, it's a great big elk. Did you get that? I have the ability to sit down and tell them a story that's maybe a little uncomfortable for me, but has a bit much bigger lesson in it for someone else. And, and I think in, in telling all those stories, you know, the hunt isn't always successful. It isn't always what you expect it to be, but it's why we keep doing it. It's because I had an emotional, I went to my knees when I went to that elk. I wept over it. I mean, it was, it was heavy, it was hard, and it was something that um, I really hope I don't repeat. Yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. you hunt long enough, it happens and losses happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not a, it's life. It's it's the real world, which it's isn't it would, it, it's yeah. life and death, <laughs> and it's not perfect, and sometimes it's messy. Um, but it's all you can do is approach it. I th- I think that story illustrates of doing everything within your power to make it the right situation. You showed me a picture of this elk. I cannot believe that it went as far as it did. It was a perfect shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally doesn't get any better than that. And and. You know, who knows why or what, um, but it didn't. It didn't happen the way you wanted. But I think you did everything right, and I think uh, you should be proud of that and and um, and and acknowledge acknowledge it for what it is as you're doing. So and to commend Jesse on that, she's taken so much bravery with this story. I mean, I've heard her tell it many times. I've heard it on other podcasts, and I've seen it written in her words. And she's so brave to tell these stories because I know it's like you guys have said, it's a fact of life of hunting you know mistakes are made sometimes and but Jesse didn't make a mistake she did things and she learned from them next time and going back to my antelope hunt every single stock or everything we did I'm like Kate now I know I learned on that one now I know now I know and Jess has taken so much bravery with this story and I'm so proud of you because I think a lot of people have these stories and they don't say them which is fine they don't have to it can be a personal moment by all means but you've really been a positive voice for the hunting community in that sense of that story, notching your tag, how you felt, what you saw when you came up on him afterwards. I remember I, I wasn't even there. And I remember the story, how he looked and the sun going over his antlers and stuff like do a great job. And I know a lot of people are proud of you and I'm proud of you. (laughs) I think, you know, the big thing there is to, to, when you talk about hunting, talk about how you feel hunting. People connect with that. You know, they, they can, everybody's had a wonderful day outside at some point. Even if you're in the middle of the city, you can have a gorgeous day. And um, talking about how you feel hunting and, and the sounds and the, the what it looks like, communicating that to somebody that is not a hunter is going to get your message across far more accurately than telling them about how big the deer was that you just killed. Yeah, absolutely. NWF was, Jesse and I went to a Women in Conservation Leadership Summit in Maryland, Cambridge, Maryland, Cam- yep, yeah, in Maryland. And one of the things that was said there, and it was just, it was conservation from a, someone who lived in New York city in a skyrise apartment and there, what they saw as conservation and what they saw as nature was like a strawberry plant growing on their back little patio. And I, and I was, my jaw just dropped. I'm like, this is so much bigger than me, this conservation topic. And something they said what at the summit was, we need to be better, better storytellers to get conservation out there. And, and when I'm talking conservation, I'm talking like the strawberry plant all the way to the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Like 
There are yeah. so many different ways of conservation. And one of the topics was at the summit is like, we're not doing a great job storytelling this conservation movement. And in my mind, and I came and Jess and I and a couple of the other Artemis women that were there, and there was actually quite a few women who hunted and fished, I felt like this year, that from your previous experience of going, I was like, the storytellers, hunters are the storytellers. And it might just be who I've circled myself with. Yeah, like, (laughs) they have a story of conservation. Hunters, and like I said, I could be my own fault of who I circle myself with and the stories I listen to. But when at this summit, when they're talking all the way from the Wilderness Society people to the Nature Conservancy people to, gosh, who else was there? There were so many people. Ducks Unlimited. Ducks Unlimited was there. You know, they, they said the thing that they're lacking to, to help conservation is we're lacking the storytelling to relate it. And in my mind, I'm like, that's not true. In, but that's because I come from this hunting background and listening to stories like Jess and listening to stories around a campfire. Just telling your buddies, we'll meet up at the bar at the end of the season and we'll tell our hunting stories into the wee hours yeah yeah yeah. and whether or not they relate at the time you're talking conservation stories and I think the more stories we get out there that are like Jess's the more we can bring into a positive view of hunting and conservation and really that's what it comes down to I want this to be something when you guys said I'm never going to drop that the 20 the 25 years I'm like scared yeah my my daughter will be 30 and I'm more passionate about it ever at 30. Well, some of the, some of the things I think is really cool about this in the storytelling and the best way to tell a story, especially a hunting story is over a a steak of Mm -hmm. whatever you just brought home. And, and I think a big thing, it's a community building event because when I, when I kill an animal, it feeds me, but it also feeds my circle of friends. It feeds my family. Like I'm, I like love cooking the wild game when it's a, a, an event, you know, you have friends over and you tell them of this story and you tell them of like everything that happened on this like incredible hunt. And then you're eating this like fresh, wild, like meat. And, you know, it's, it really pulls that whole circle in and like to the food part of it where, where if at anything people understand food, it is a universal language. You need it. You need to consume it. Um, and to tell the story around food, um, is, is, a, is an important part of our cultural history. Human, humans, we've been doing this forever. The hunting story around the campfire, it wasn't told just around a campfire, it was told around a meal at a campfire. And that kind of like bringing people together through food is something that, um, I mean, we can all get behind that. I mean, yeah. And we all need fresh, good, healthy food. food and we're so in a fun. culture that doesn't really <laughs> uphold fresh, good, healthy I've done a fair amount of research on this, and I have yet to find. I I think it's a hundred percent of people need food. I I (laughs) I think so. I I think that stat is right, but I'm not not exactly sure. You like that? Yeah, sounds great. You're doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chelsea, Jesse, I really appreciate you two sharing your stories today. Um, Really, really great, and you both are doing great things with Artemis. And with your your personal lives and, and, and getting out there. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you giving us the opportunity. And I'll, I'll do a shameless plug of with Artemis. Um, if you're out there and you're a woman that's hunting and angling or you want to get into hunting and fishing, find us. Um, we are, we are a platform. We're artemis.nwf.org. Um, and, and we need women that are willing to tell stories. Absolutely. And we'll share information on the show notes page, too, so you can link right over to their website and uh, see some pictures of the And there's the lots of exciting things coming, too, with Artemis. 
you know. Yeah, we have a program manager we're hiring, and, and we have some clinics that are conservation training clinics that we'll be doing in a couple different states that are how to engage on, like, land management plans and how to talk to your legislature, how to, you know, be an active member of your conservation ethic. Excellent. Well, we'll put all that in the, uh, in the show notes, and we'll uh, have another conversation soon. All right. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.